You're listening to Cross Section, the podcast of the Summit View Church of Christ. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord We began a study of the Bible's book of Esther last week with chapters 1 and 2. Today we continue in chapters 3 and 4. And last week I had a memory verse for us. Sarah, do we have that? Let's go ahead and put that up on the screen if we have it. Our memory verse, Romans 8, 28. Is that? There it is. Let's read this together, twice through, okay? And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Once more. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, if you believe that then you learn to look at life differently from the way we would look at life without God. You start to look for what God is doing in your life from day to day and from year to year. Because you believe God is doing something, or He's promised He would, so you look for it. And you start to wonder, even in bad situations, what does God want me to do for my part as he is working toward good for his people in these circumstances. Where do I fit in to the good work God is doing? And you start to watch then for opportunities to serve God in bold and courageous ways, and also in mundane, normal, everyday ways. And you start to look at people differently, too, because you start wondering, what's God doing with them? And what does God want me to do with them? So, for example, one summer during college, my car kept stalling. It would just die. Anytime I slowed down at a stop sign, I was at risk of my car dying, and I would just be stuck there for a while. Well, one day it died just as I was getting off the freeway. I was able to roll it onto the shoulder of the off-ramp, and then I just sat there, stuck, wondering what to do next. Lots of cars went by, and then all of a sudden, one car pulled off onto the shoulder with me, and a man and a woman jumped out, and they yelled to me to steer while they pushed, and they pushed my car down the rest of the off-ramp and into the gas station that was down at the next intersection, and I was able to get some help there. Now, why did they stop and help when so many others just drove on by? What kind of eyes did they have that when they looked at me, they saw me differently from how everyone else who just drove by saw me? Another example. James 1 verse 27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Some of you have put that teaching into practice in very obvious ways. You've adopted a child like Mordecai adopted Esther. Some of you have taken in a foster child or a teenager who needed a place to stay for a while. Some of you have given time to check on a widow or widower, and, or you've sort of taken them to be part of your extended family because you've, just, you've loved them for God's sake. Other people, though, might look at those same widows or orphans and see them with different eyes, 
as a nuisance, a burden on society. They might be like Mr. Bumble in Charles Dickens' novel, Oliver Twist. My daughter Anna and I have been reading through that recently. Mr. Bumble is in charge of the local orphans who have no other place to go. And he abuses them for a power trip to stoke his own sense of self-importance. When one person looks at another person in such great need and despises them, what causes a third person to have such compassion on that same person in need that they'll reorient their whole lives to meet their needs? What does that third person who helps think God is trying to do in their lives, how does that change their eyes and how they look at someone who is in need of help? One more example. What was it that so moved Jesus our Lord that he stepped out of the eternal glory of heaven and took on mortal flesh and blood and laid down his life to bring us to God? He didn't have to do that. What was it about his eyes that caused him to look at us in a way that moved him to give his life on the cross? What did he think God was doing in his life so that he sacrificed his own to save ours? Well, those same types of questions surround Esther as her story develops. Why does she make the decision she makes at the end of chapter 4 that we'll see in just a minute? With what kind of eyes does she look at her people, the Jews? And what does she think God is doing in her life? And similar questions apply also to the villain of her story. A man named Haman. He's the king's right-hand man. We meet him in chapter 3, and let's begin our reading there uh, today. Chapter 3 and verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamedatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month 
And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. That day will be important. We'll see later that it's the 13th day of the 12th month. On our calendar, March 7th, 473 B.C. That's the day Haman arranges for all the Jews across the vast Persian Empire to be destroyed. But at the moment, the story is still in uh, April 474 by our calendar. It's 11 months earlier. It's the first month of that year, April 474 for us. The pur, the lot, is cast. The date is set. But why is Haman doing this? Why is Haman so eager to destroy all the Jews? Well, because Mordecai, who is a Jew, refuses to kneel before him. Well, why would Mordecai refuse to kneal before Haman? Mordecai, you may remember from the end of our text last week, sits at the king's gate, which means that he's some kind of official of the king, which in turn means he knows and practices all the royal protocols. He knows when to kneel, when to stand, when to sit. So the other royal officials at the king's gate, they ask him, why do you disobey the king's command? It's dangerous to disobey the king day after day. Whatever answer Mordecai gives them isn't recorded here, except that he mentions that he's a Jew. But if you're an ancient Jew reading this story, you know exactly why Haman refuses to bow before, uh, why Mordecai refuses to bow before Haman. It's in your history. About a thousand years earlier, in the time of Moses, in Exodus chapter 17, just after God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, a people from the south end of what would later be the land of Israel, the south end of the promised land, a people called the Amalekites, attacked the Israelites. And as the first group of people to attack God's people, they made themselves enemies of God. Because they were the first, they came to represent, in a way, all the peoples of the world who had tried to destroy the people of God. And so God declared at that time that he would always be at war with the Amalekites. Which was one way for God to say that he would always be there to defend his people. About 400 years later, so almost 600 years before Esther's time, in 1 Samuel 14 and 15, the Amalekites attacked again and plundered the Israelites' goods. And so God sent King Saul, first king of Israel, to destroy the Amalekites, including their king, whose name was Agag. Saul went to war against them. He defeated them. He captured King Agag, and he decided to spare Agag. But God had decreed that King Agag must die. The prophet Samuel came, and he rebuked Saul, and he himself put Agag to death. But apparently some of Agag's offspring survived because Haman, in verse 1, is called the Agagite. He appears to be a descendant of King Agag. And Mordecai, it just so happens that chapter 2, verse 5 says, he's descended from Kish, who was the father of King Saul. Mordecai is a sort of distant cousin to Saul, who fought against Agag, who's the ancestor of Haman. 
And so knowing that God declared in Exodus 17, verse 16, that he would always be at war with the Amalekites, and Haman is an Amalekite, descended from Agag, no less, whom King Saul fought, Mordecai refuses to kneel before Haman or to pay him honor. Now, if Haman had been a man of better character, the kind of man who renounces the sins of his ancestors, maybe he and Mordecai could have worked things out. Maybe he could have become right with God. But he's not that kind of man. He's just like his ancestors. He's proud, he's violent, he's power-hungry. And so when Haman finds out that Mordecai refuses to kneel and that Mordecai is a Jew, he's not content to punish only Mordecai. That wouldn't be big enough. He determines to wipe out all the Jews. He's going to get ultimate revenge on Mordecai and all of Mordecai's people. And so he casts the lot, the purr, and chooses the day. And then he goes to the king. Verse 8. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king... Let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamedatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned they wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, and the city of Susa was bewildered. Haman says to King Xerxes, there's this certain people who are causing trouble across the kingdom. They're disobeying the king's laws. That wasn't true, by the way. But if you don't mind, I'll eliminate them for you, and I'll even pay 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury. Sounds like possibly a bribe. Hey, let me put this money in the treasury and I'll, I'll take care of this problem. And it's a massive bribe. 10,000 talents of silver was somewhere in the neighborhood of 375 tons of silver. Haman really wants these people gone. Haman never names the people he's talking about. They're just 
a certain people, not even worthy of being named. They're like those orphans Mr. Bumble in Charles Dickens' story is supposed to look out for. Those orphans, you know, they're just the troublesome spawn of troublesome women, a drain on the system, welfare babies. Mr. Bumble hardly cared who they were. Either they served for his advancement or they were worthless. To Haman, the Jews are like that. They're nothing but a despicable people represented by rebellious Mordecai. And I wonder, what caused Haman's eyes to be so hateful toward the Jews? Clearly, Haman had no sense at all that God uh, was at work in his life, and that just wasn't even on his radar. Clearly, the Jews, those ancient enemies of his lineage, were nothing but an obstacle to his own advancement. And Haman himself had the full, aggressive, violent spirit of his Amalekite ancestors. And the king, he doesn't come out looking very good here either. He doesn't even ask any questions that we know of. He just gives Haman permission. Yeah, go do what you need to do. And when the decree goes out in the city of Susa, which had a fair number of Jews in it at that time, is bewildered, the king and Haman sit down to drink. No big deal. Just another day in the life of the king. But by God's providence, it's not just any other day. And an ancient Jewish reader would catch that right away. Haman's order in the name of the king was written on the 13th day of the first month. That's the day before the Passover. And the Passover celebrates God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Timing is important in the book of Esther. We'll see that again next week. Haman's timing is not good. I mean, if you're going to order the destruction of God's people, don't do it within hours of the celebration of God's deliverance of those same people. Remember our memory verse from last week, Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The Passover was a reminder of that principle for Israel long before Paul ever wrote those words. God had saved his people from destruction before. Now the question is, will he do it again? The king's decree is published, and Mordecai hears about it. And let's read chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. 
She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg, her for, to beg for mercy, and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Esther has been queen a little over four years at this point. And as you know, that early passionate flame of marital bliss can fade a bit if you don't keep feeding the fire. Esther hasn't been called into the presence of the king in 30 days. Mordecai and the Jews across the empire, from India to Israel and beyond, hear the news that the king has decreed their annihilation on that day chosen by the Pur in 11 months. And they grieve. Mordecai tears his clothes, puts on, puts on sackcloth and ashes, goes out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. It's his own little protest movement. The Jews across the empire join him. They mourn and wail and weep and, and they fast. Remember, God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. But the Jews fast. And fasting in Scripture always involves praying. In their moment of crisis, the Jews turn to God in weeping and fasting. Then Mordecai sends word to Esther, urging her to go and plead with the king for mercy for her people, which means she will have to reveal her Jewish heritage for the first time to her husband who has already fired one queen in his anger. How will he react? This king who sat down to drink with Haman after ordering the execution of an entire unnamed troublesome people, what will he do? Esther sends word back to Mordecai. She can't do this. No one can go before the king uninvited on penalty of death. She goes before the king. She could be executed. If he's in a bad mood, if he has bad timing, if he has somehow become displeased with her, she can't do this. She sends that message back to Mordecai. Mordecai receives it. Chapter 4, verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows 
but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai responds that Esther should not think she's safe just because she's back in, she's in the king's palace. Even there, someone could find out that she's a Jew and her life could be at risk. Or maybe being the queen would protect her, but she and her family will come to an end some other way. They may lose God's protection if she doesn't act. And if she fails to act, God will still deliver the Jews. Mordecai's sure about that. Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, Mordecai says. Our faithlessness cannot defeat the purposes of God. He will do what he intends to do. But our faithlessness can write us out of his purposes if we refuse to do what he has prepared for us to do. Then Mordecai speaks what are perhaps the most important words in the entire book of Esther. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai wants Esther to imagine that maybe, just maybe, she became queen not at random, not by luck, not by the whim of the king, but by the direction of God himself working in her circumstances, for this very moment that she might have a chance to save her people. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And we naturally apply this principle to our lives. Romans 8.28 tells us God works in our lives to bring about ultimate good for those who love him. And Esther 4.14 calls us to consider whether God might have positioned us into just the situation and role that he wants us to be in so that we can do good work that he has prepared for us to do. And yet, we're not Esther. God has not placed us in a position of royalty like he did with her. We're not Esther we're not Moses, we're not Elijah, we're not Mary. With the incredible and daunting roles that God placed before them, roles that we celebrate today because of their faithfulness and the great things God did through them, but we're simply not in their position. And yet, you and I, like Esther, we do have a position. We have a position. It's not Esther's, it's our own. It's different. It's some kind of place and role given to you by God. You're a grandparent. God has placed you in that position. And that role, though it's common, is not the least bit small or mundane. Because there may come a day or a moment or a hundred of them when you get that sense that God has placed you in that specific position so that you can be a blessing to your grandchildren right then. To speak a word from God to them. To love them when they need it. To nurture them in a way that no one else can. Don't miss that opportunity. You're a nurse. You're a teacher. You're a friend to someone who's hurting. You have inside information about a loved one's struggle. And who knows but that you have come to your position 
for such a time as this. Why did God put you there? What does God want you to do there? You're a part of this church, and you start to notice a need, a a way to serve. Why might God have put you in position to notice that need? Your schedule gets messed up. You're running late. You pull onto the off-ramp and notice a lost-looking young man whose car is broken down by the side of the road. Is it possible that God might have arranged your schedule for you to be there at just that moment? And it's so mundane. It's so normal. And yet it makes such a difference in that young man's life at that moment that even when he's not so young anymore, some 27 years later, he still remembers it. Mordecai asks Esther, And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? So Esther has a decision to make. What does she believe about God? And how will that direct her response to the plight of her fellow Jews? So the last part of our text, verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Esther makes her decision. She agrees with Mordecai. God is at work here. He has put her in her royal position on purpose so that she can at least try to save her people. And so she will fast before God, plead with him for help, and look on her people with eyes that see them not as a threat to her survival, if anyone were to find out she's a Jew, but as her own people and God's own people for whom she will willingly, if necessary, lay down her life. Here is where we see just how different Esther and Haman are. Haman will slaughter thousands of people to exalt himself. Esther will give her life to save them. Haman will pay big money to end the lives of his enemies. Esther will pay for her people's lives with her own. Haman arranges to have the Jews killed, and then he drinks. Esther, to save her people, will fast. And why? Why will Esther do all this? Because she believes God is working in her life. And she recognizes that that this is what God has positioned her to do. She could probably turn a blind eye to her people and survive. She's been pretending that she's not a Jew. She hasn't told anybody. All she has to do is just keep doing that. And it's possible no one will ever find out. But instead... Because she sees God at work for good in this terrible situation and because she sees how God has positioned her her to join him in his work, she makes the choice to identify herself with the Jewish people and to join with them in the threat that they face and to risk everything to save them. Which is exactly what Jesus did for us. And so Esther, in a small way, becomes a sort of foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus saw God at work to save us, 
understood the role God had given him, loved God and loved us, joined us in our broken humanity, and though he himself was sinless, he gave his life on the cross to bring us forgiveness from God. And let me close by saying, every time you, you serve sacrificially in the church, every time you take time you could have spent doing something else to encourage a widow or a widower and make sure they're cared for, every time you reorient your whole life to care for a foster child or an orphan, every time you walk compassionately with a dear friend through their time of suffering and you take some of their burden on yourself to make their load a little lighter, every time you mess up your schedule by pulling off the, to the off-ramp shoulder to push a young, bro, young man's broken-down car to a safer place, every time you do something like this, you too are a little bit like Esther and a little bit like Jesus. You see God at work in your life, positioning you to be a blessing, sometimes at great cost or risk, and it's worth it. And so your eyes become eyes that see people for all their worth in the sight of God, eyes that look for that opportunity to bless someone as God has prepared for you to do. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. May God bless you. Let's pray. Our God, who provided Esther to be in just the right position to act to save the Jews, our God who provided Jesus in just the right position to save us, we praise you and we honor you. Thank you for your great love. Lord God, position us to be a blessing to someone in your name. And don't let us miss the opportunity. But give us courage, give us willing hearts, give us eyes that seek out those opportunities and eyes that see in other people the value that you see in them. And that are watching for opportunities to serve. Bless us in this way, O oh God, that we may be a little bit like Esther and a little bit like Jesus. Guide us in this, Lord. Bless us in these. In Jesus' name.